Hi, my name is Leah Wire. I am the GM of Birdie. And the thing that I love most about beauty is the joy that it can bring to your life. It's something that drew me to Birdie initially because it's part of the tagline. It's really baked into the DNA of the brand. And it really is the power that something big or small can bring on such a powerful, positive feeling. From New York City, you're listening to Beauty Is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the beauty industry. Welcome, Leah. We're so excited to have you here today on Beauty Is Your Business. Thank you, April. I'm here today. I'm April Franzina with Abby Wallach, my co-host. Hi, great to see you. We're so excited to get to chat, Leah. You have such an incredible history in the beauty editorial business. So tell us a little bit about how you started. You've had such like a meteoric trajectory over the years leading you into this role. So give us a little bit of a synopsis of that. That's very kind of you to say. It's strange because it's been 22 years almost, and it feels like you know, it's been a minute. And I think it goes way back to the early, I guess it was the year 2000. And I was hired to be an assistant beauty and fashion editor at Health Magazine, which at the time was owned by Time Inc. And a couple of years ago was all of Time Inc. was basically purchased by Meredith Corp. And so I worked there for four years. And I was under the direction of this woman named Colleen Sullivan, who really had been in the business for a really long time and wasn't really looking to have anybody with experience. She wanted somebody who had a passion for beauty and wanted to be in magazines, but really just wanted to learn and be like an apprentice, I guess is a good, is a good word, old school word to describe it. And so she kind of took me under her wing, taught me so much. And from there I moved on to be worked in beauty my, my whole entire career, but I went to self magazine, I went to fitness magazine. And so that was like the first 10 years was beauty through the lens of health and wellness. And then the next 10 years was more beauty through the lens of sort of trends and fashion. And so I left fitness magazine to go to Hearst to go to Cosmo. And I worked at Cosmo for a really long time. And I had incredible leadership at Cosmo. I, Kate White hired me. She was this legendary editor at the time. And I think that her prime was selling 3 million magazines on the newsstand every month. And and so like the power that a cover line could wield and just, you know, she taught me so much. And then Joanna Coles came after Kate decided to leave and Joanna taught me just another level of media and how, you know, to take advantage of all of these other mediums like television. We had a reality show at Cosmo and you know we just did so many fun things under her tenure. And then after that, I sort of transitioned into a different role at Hearst, which was overseeing a lot of magazines. I think when I was done in that position, I had 10 or 11 magazine, the beauty editors of those magazines reporting into me. And the idea was that we would find sort of efficiencies and people would write for multiple magazines, not just one, which was the traditional way of working. And so in that role, I was really able to learn how to run a business and like kind of fell in love with 
something that I think a lot of people don't wouldn't really love. I mean, my whole career was really creating and like going on set and creating these looks and writing and editing. And that was such a powerful right brain experience. And then I was sort of put in this position where I was like reading a PL and budgeting and doing all these things that weren't necessarily fun. Um, but I found them to be fun. And so that idea of managing and kind of running the business side of things really appealed to me. And that's what how I segued into Birdie. So I can talk about that too. But that's like a, that's sort of my career in a nutshell. <laughs> that's really interesting because most people in the magazine world, and that's probably how I know you from all those years ago at Cosmo and Beauty. And I worked with an in-style editor for many years with Beautiful Stranger. That's probably how I remember you. Long time ago. But as I'm listening, because I, I was partners with the editor, beauty editor, for so many years, it's interesting to hear your journey and how you've transitioned from true, the creative, which is, you know, so much fun and using that side of your brain power, and now to the business side and the business world of magazine and paper and editorial has changed dramatically through the course of your journey. So I'd love for you to share, you know, how do you look at the world of editorial today and how it has changed and affected the way magazines are positioned in the market and how the world, everything has converged, right? So everyone's had to sort of adjust to it in certain ways, which has given us other challenges. You know, how are, how are you addressing that? And how do you look at that? Because you had that opportunity to be on the other side, which you loved, and now you're on the business side. What's today and where do you think it's headed? It's really interesting because, like I said, I was in magazines during a time when people were rabid about buying monthly magazines at the newsstand. And to have watched that world change for a lot of publications. Now, a lot of publications are still selling, you know, great numbers on the newsstand, but some are struggling. And I think what you said is right, Abby, the worlds have just converged. Like you have the stories that you're telling in a print magazine now can be told in a different way online. And so you're sort of using both to tell a very thorough story. You know, the, the tricky part about working only in print for all those years is that you had a finite amount of space. So you knew that across, you know, three or four pages, at most, you could probably fit, you know, a thousand to fifteen hundred words. And that word count sort of really kind of started to get smaller and smaller and smaller over the years because the visuals became such an important piece of telling the stories. And so what enables you to do such great things online is that there's an infinite amount of space and you can write forever. You can have 4,000 words on a, on a topic if you wanted to. You just have to make sure that, you know, you're keeping the page lively and people moving along and continuing to move downward. So it's a different type of storytelling. I think you can use both to your advantage if, if you have the luxury of having a print product still. But I think you can also use so many other things. I mean, we at Birdie and on at Brides, which I oversee both of those websites at a company called Dot Dash, we use everything that we can to tell a story completely. And we can tell a story in various chunks and different ways. So we can tell something, of course, on the sites. You then can send them to have a different experience on Instagram, a different experience on TikTok or Pinterest. 
And of course, you could be one person and reading all of those things, right? But the idea is that you're trying to reach a variety of people on the mediums that they are at. And you're trying to tell the story in a different way that appeals onto those platforms. And so I think being able to understand all those years when I was, particularly when I was overseeing a variety of brands at Hearst, I think the skill set that I acquired most was looking at a trend because we were all telling the same types of stories in a particular month, but trying to understand, okay, the way that we're going to tell it in Cosmo is going to be completely different than the way we tell it in 17, which is going to be absolutely different than the way we tell it to Harper's Bazaar audience or a town and country audience or whatever it is. So you were really able to take one concept and then tailor it to the different brands and the different audiences there. And I think that's what we're still doing when you work in an all digital site, you are taking a concept and then telling that story in different ways across various platforms. That's so true. I feel like that versatility, Leah and I got to work together and it was such an amazing learning experience being able to take the seed of an idea and transform it through different lenses for different audiences. And that is just such a valuable skill, especially for these times when the audiences are so specific and everybody wants something personal to them. And I think that that is just amazing. Well, that's so interesting, April, because I'm looking at the two of you and I'm thinking, you know, you're both have been editors and, and now Leah's on the other side. And I'm just thinking through because, you know, I started in digital media 20 years ago before it was even a thing. And I think about how it has really expanded, right? So when, and I'm thinking about both of you and how you tell that story. And when you go through that editorial process, are you looking at it each distribution channel, you have to create the story in a way that reaches that consumer and speaks to them, right? So how do you do that in a bigger way? I'm just curious from an editorial point of view, do you map out each distribution channel and do you have people implementing it there? How do you even organize that? Because today there is so many places, there are so many places to be and you really can't miss a place. You have to be everywhere. So how do you even manage that? That's such an exorbitant process, I would think. And you have to do it so fast. So the difference, I think that one of the biggest differences, the learning curves that I had moving from print to all digital is you don't always have the luxury to sit down and map it out and to sit down and really predict like how you're going to distribute it. And that is why you have to have the absolute best people working for you who have such specific skills in these various buckets. So my editorial directors at Birdie and Brides know those audiences so well, they know exactly what to do on site to capture their attention to bring people into the story. Their social teams are incredibly skilled at repackaging those stories and they can do it on the fly. So it's the innate skills that those people bring to the table allow you to really move with speed to be able to, to tell those stories in different ways. I think there are moments where you can plan and those moments are around big tentpole opportunities. Like we have digital issues on both of our brands. Those digital issues have 20 original stories in them. There's original photography, there's video, there's all these components. And that those tentpoles is when you have to really sit down and like map it out. You have like the Gantt chart and all of your due dates and you have, you know, everybody working in like as a symphony together to bring that to life with 
very planned out days and weeks to promote and support those initiatives. So you can be a bit more planny, I guess. The everyday, though, you just have to trust that your teams know how to deliver. And I've really never had a disappointment in that area since I've come to Dot Dash. It's been great. So the infrastructure probably has had to change also in terms of like who you hire and what positions exist and where you're going to build out the team based on where you're getting your traction. For sure. And, and and so when I got to the company in early 2019, I had an interesting journey. I came from Hearst. I was going to Dot Dash, which is a really huge digital publisher. And then they acquired Birdie and My Domain. I was coming to run those brands. Five months later, they acquired Brides. So they put that into my group. So you had me coming from, you know, a really corporate background. You had Dot Dash, which is a completely new, it was three years old at the time. So really nimble and fast and, and kind of startup-y. And then you had these acquired employees. And so when I got there, I had like, I was merging sort of three different types of cultures. I had six or seven people that I acquired. And over the years, so over the last two and a half years, my team's grown to 26 people. So the skill set that I think I brought from reorging a lot of the Hearst teams, you know, I had two years experience, like bringing on new people and reorganizing the structure and hiring people and getting rallying people around doing more brands and, you know, thinking in different ways. And, and that really, I think, afforded me the ability to be able to, to reorg and see things in a different way. My team is probably the most different of all the Dot Dash brands because we have two brands that people have known and have loved and have passion around for brides 87 years now, I think, Birdie since 2013. And the other brands at Dot Dash, many of them are a bit newer. You know, they may be like two, three, four years old. And so we have to not just serve the audience, the huge fan base that we have for our brands, but we also have to continue to develop new fans and serve solutions on to problems that people are Googling about. And we have all these things that we need to do. And so I really structured my team in a way that was like, okay, this group of people is going to focus on the really buzzy pop culture moments that are happening every single minute that we want to respond to and all the social. And then this team is going to really focus on the the sort of evergreen type content that that we need to focus on. And, and this team is going to do this and whatever. So I just sort of thought out of the box. And I think people probably thought I was crazy when I first got there. But I was like, I know this is how this is going to work. And it has served us really well. But yes, you have to be able to think differently. I think about how are your brands different? What do they need? And how are you going to set up your team for success? I think we've landed on something special. That's pretty amazing to think about how, you know, you have such a huge team and across all of these different brands and how with specifically for digital, it's such a different skill set that there's different roles that are needed across the board. And I'm curious when you're thinking about the breakdown of the different needs, like you mentioned for Birdie, for example, as a site. So there's obviously the content that you want to produce for the existing audience to keep them interested and to you know, meet their needs. And then there's also like 
the broader SEO type of content that, you know, you want to be visible when people search for things. So how do you balance that out like amongst your team? And when you're strategizing, is there like a percentage or you kind of just feel it out and do, you know, what seems right with the site? Yeah. You have to sort of break your budget down to where what you see are the gaps and the holes in the content. And so you never sort of know, you can have a a little bit of a sense of what the news will be for that month or, you know, for the quarter. So as you're like budgeting your content, you kind of say, oh, we, you know, we might do like X number of these stories. But there's nearly an endless amount of SEO terms, right? Like it's just when you look at what people are searching for and that definitely changes season to season, there's so much out there. And that setup of the story is very different than the setup of the news story, for example. It's really similar, April, to when I was in print, what you are still doing a lot of print you know, the way that you package a front of book story, which is like all that newsy sort of bite-sized content compared to the way you package a big feature, whether it's a survey or like a, it's just a different thought process. And, And the way that you set up these stories online, it's very similar. And so we kind of have specialists in the org that know exactly what to do with a news story. You know, what is the art going to look like? How, what's the headline going to, it's all the same science that we were sort of, you know, raised on in print. And you just take those lessons. I've taken those lessons and applied them in a different, in a different way. That's so interesting. I'm curious where you see like the readers of the website, like the people who are like the fans, like you said, the, what is that demographic like that you're speaking to generally? And then how do you try to bring in new readers to the brand as well? Because that's so hard when people are, you know, it's Google searching and there's so many outlets out there and so many voices. How do you, you maintain the base that you already have and then try to like, you know, reach out to new? So it really, I think comes down to the setup of the stories on the site, right? So like somebody who doesn't know Birdie, for example, is going to land on a page, they're going to go there, they're going to read it, right? So you try to do everything that you can to keep that person interested in the brand along the journey down the page. And hopefully by the end, they might want to stay and click around and get to know the site a bit more. Or when they have another question and they are served something from us later, they're going to recognize Birdie. Maybe they're going to go to Birdie directly and start to look around and you gradually form that relationship. But that is a perfect scenario. And you're never, you know, that's not a guarantee. So you have to do everything you can to reach different audiences and get your brand awareness out there. That is the reason why these sort of brand marketing strategies are so important to brands, particularly younger brands. My brands are probably old in the world of my company, but they're young compared to the brands that you work on, April. Good Housekeeping's over 100 years old. And so you have the brand awareness. It's so strong on your brands. Whether or not the people are interacting with them every day, they know what Good Housekeeping is or they've heard of it. So we have to try to do the same thing and try to make Birdie as much of a household name as we can. And so it's why we do digital issues, for example. Those digital issues based off of the celebrity are going to get a ton of pickup from sites like Us Weekly or People or whoever is going to write about, pick up a, a line or do an interview with that celebrity afterwards. That amplifies the brand. 
every couple of months I go on to QVC and we do sort of an editorial beauty hour that reaches a completely different audience. People are understanding what Birdie is, what it's about, why they should trust us. You know, so it's really looking at the brand and maximizing your exposure to as many people as possible so that they start to recognize the brand and want to become a fan of it. Wow, it's so interesting. So I'm just sort of forward thinking about, I'm listening to every word that you're saying. It's just incredible how it has evolved, right, over such a, so many years and where we're at today in the world of content and media and digital and the future, right? So what does the future look like for these brands online and on paper? Are you thinking really clearly on video strategy, on short form content? Is it long form content? I'm from the entertainment industry, right? So it's always been about programming. And that's how I look at that world. I learned through a beauty editor, but it's all come together now in one medium. And now the distribution is huge. So, you know, are you thinking about, should we be doing lots of short form, you know, TikTok's all the rage, right? Like the whole world is producing content today. How does that play into your strategy as a media business that has amazing brands that are known in the market. How do you think about that going forward and what it's going to be? You know, also for that young generation too, for the Gen Z. Every media company has their own strategy in this department. You know, I've, I've watched media companies sort of just pivot to become exactly what you just said, Abby. Like they are making basically like television programming. And and so everyone's doing something different. And I think everyone's just trying to understand and be ahead of the curve. They're trying to get there. I take a bit more of like a more conservative with a sort of side of experimentation. Like that's my approach. It's always been my approach in life. And so I know our bread and butter is our content. It is the reason why People love Birdie and they love Birdie because even the evergreen stories have personality to them. They are bringing something that is unique and recognizing the individuality of the person reading it and and the of the world of beauty in general. And so we try so hard to just focus on what we do really, really well. And, you know, here and there, we'll experiment with things to see if they stick. And if they stick, we'll dig a little deeper. But I want to prove out concepts. I don't want to just throw a plate of spaghetti at the wall and like see what sticks. I do want to try to have some direction from what we know works with our brand and our readers. And so we've recently launched on Birdie, a new video series called Crowned. It really is this beautifully produced and, you know, it's artistic. It is, explores the history of black hairstyles. It shows them in person. It talks about the origins and our social media editor on Birdie Star Donaldson hosts it. And it's been this passion project for her for over a year now, but we, and we wanted to really do it quickly, but it took a lot of time. To do something really well, you have to take the time, put the real investment into it. And that's not just money. It's research and thinking. And it's the development. You have to develop it like it's a show. That's what you have to do. Yes. And that, like when you go through that and you realize what, you know, a a five minute piece of content or a 10 minute piece of content can take, like how much time it takes to get that 
you can't scale that with a team of 20 people. Like it's, it's just not, it's not scalable. So, so that's what I mean about like, you have to be picky and choosy about the projects you're going to do. You want the high quality there. You want somebody to, to watch this and, and share it with everyone. You want the engagement to be so high and, and you can't sort of scratch the surface of that. You have to go deep and, and go in, and invest in it. And so there are just a specific number of projects that I choose to invest in each year. We want to make them really, really high quality. I believe that our digital issues are the best that are out there because we don't just have a cover story and call it a digital issue. We don't repurpose content. It is a full deep dive issue, you know, every couple of months. So again, it's like, I just really believe in quality over quantity when it comes to, to those projects. Yeah. That's your true editorial background, which always shines through. It really is. And I think that people who have been in print for a long time, some of them have had great mentors and push them to make the jump to digital or to embrace it and, and do both. Some people are really intimidated. They find the process intimidating. They find that crossover intimidating. I was one of them. I really believe, though, that people can learn how to do digital. They can learn the technical side of it. It will take many months. I was completely lost the first couple of months that I was in this world. It was a full-on language barrier. People were saying things to me that I had actually no idea what they were talking about. And then all of a sudden it started to click and I started to speak the language. I started to understand the data. I started to understand all of the stuff that's important to digital minded people. But those 20 years of experience of plotting out an issue and doing a photo shoot and understanding marketing and understanding how to do branding. I mean, like when I worked at Cosmo, our edition, the US edition, fed 65 other editions around the world. Like that, it was the biggest young women's brand, media brand out there. And so when you're in it, you don't realize the massiveness of that. When you step back and you say, wow, like I, the stories that I was producing at Cosmo were showing up in, you know, Europe and Asia and all these places. Like that's an incredible privilege that you can learn from for years and years to come. And I draw on that experience every day. It's so true. It really is like sort of to come back to where you were saying, Abby, in the beginning, it's all connected. And I feel like the brands, you know, that have existed are in different forms are just sort of transforming and growing in a lot of ways into all of these other different, you know, platforms that there are. And it's, I see it as such a great opportunity. Like there's just ways, more ways for people to see you and interact with you and more ways for you to be able to tell your story and more stories in different ways, which I feel like is so great. And I think we have probably time for one last question before we get to chatting about the personal side of you, Leah. And I was just curious about, you mentioned the challenge of, how not as exciting it was to sort of adapt yourself to the business side of leading such a big team in this role and in your past role too. Can you talk a little bit about how you adapted to that and what some of your challenges were? I think the challenges, so trying to find the right balance of where can I be helpful creatively? Because I will say my team from a creative perspective they are probably heads above where I was at that point in my career. They are just so brilliant. The shoots that they produce are just unbelievably, 
amazing and they just have an innate skill for it. So I never want to step on their toes, but there are definitely lessons that I think I can sort of impart on them. And so I just try to find that balance because a huge part of my job is not creative anymore. And I've had to, so I sort of had to like accept that, like my job has changed. I can help when they need to, you know, have some advice. For the most part, I need to lean into things that aren't always creative And a lot of those things were new, you know, so reorging was not new. That comes pretty naturally to me, understanding what somebody's skill set is and what they can contribute to the org is something that I've always done really well. So that part of it wasn't hard. Managing a budget, not super hard. I've done that before. What is hard for me and what I'm still learning is the financial modeling that goes into being a GM and, you know, trying to, the people that run Dot Dash are these brilliant men that are, they've all gone to business school. They're like Wharton guys. Like they, so they're not ex-publishers. They're like business people. To convince them to do a digital issue, for example, like they like the sound of it, but they want to understand, like, if I'm going to give you this much money what are you giving back to me? If I'm going to ask for a huge initiative to be funded, they have to be sold on that. And so that piece of it was hard for me to understand, primarily because when I worked in magazines, there was less money to go around for things like this. And so I didn't have the, the muscle to practice in this role. When you work at a dot dash isn't a startup, the company was about dot com for you know decades. So it's a long running company, it just is newly branded. And so the new part of Dot Dash is still young. And so they do operate like a startup. There's more money to go around. They believe in your ideas. They want to fund them. And so you can ask for a lot of money to support an initiative. You just have to prove it out. And that piece of it, like modeling out the costs over a two-year period and like what the revenue can be and, you know, whatever, that is hard for me. It is not something that I learned as a young business minor in college, it's just not something that I at least retained 22 years later. So it's I'm still learning to have confidence in that piece of it. I just have a question regarding the ROI on the content, because that model has somewhat changed as well, right? How do you measure that? Is everything that you produce, I mean, church and state has become cloudy. So how do you measure the true ROI on the content or the project that you're doing. So there is a return on the investment because if the founders are the Wharton mindset, they're thinking, what am I getting back? As you said, so it it is a different way of thinking, especially from someone who was on the editorial side, it's not easy to cross over. I know exactly what you're saying. I've been there. Yeah. It's not easy And, you know, there's various aspects of ROI that I have to consider. Some of it is maybe we're going to do this project and we believe it's going to get us double our Instagram following. I'm just like, I mean, that would be a huge, that would be a huge undertaking. But, you know, that could be somebody's ROI. Traffic is an ROI, growing, you know, increasing your footprint. Obviously, revenue is ROI. And the thing about beauty is that, which I think is very different from a lot of categories that Dot Dash has verticals in, beauty, people in the beauty industry still want something really special. They love that tentpole moment. They love to be able to sponsor something that's new and to 
it doesn't always necessarily translate into, you know, we're going to be paid on an impression or whatever that is. Like it can really be just somebody wanting the same thing that you want to invest in in that moment. And that's where I think it's sometimes hard in this world because beauty is new to Dots Ash. It's become a learning curve for them because the industry just operates really differently than, say, the tech industry or the car industry or food industry, for that matter. Like, it's different. And I remember saying to them, like, it's not a apples to apples situation from what, you know, the categories that you guys have been used to in the past. This is different. Give us a minute. I promise you like it will work, but we just need to sort of prove it out. And, you know, we're in that phase now where they're like, okay, we get it now. When you're trying to to pilot something new at a company who has a very specific way of operating and you're trying to bend the rules and do it in a way that you know in your soul is going to produce something really big and great with lots of growth, but you just can't tangibly model it out, it's a challenge. (laughs) It's a real challenge. Don't give up. Stay true (laughs) to who you are. I love it. No, no, no. It's really come into its own and, and it's worked, but you just have to be patient and think in the long, the long term. Love that. It's so true. It's pretty amazing. I love seeing everything that you're accomplishing, Leah. It's so exciting to see. And I love the digital issues that you do. It's such a great way of bringing eyes to the brand too and making it because making a splash and you know that's a big part of you know growing an audience so so cool have you taken a look at story dot yet every brand and every product has a story to tell and you can't successfully sell that brand or product without telling the story StoryDot delivers your story wherever you want it to be heard. You can meet your customers at each point in their journey, connecting the dots between your business and the consumer to enhance engagement, experience, and conversion. I encourage you to take a look at StoryDot at StoryDot.com. That's S-T-O-R-I-D-O-T.com. So at this point, we get to know you a little bit better on a personal side for our listeners. So we do what we call hitting the pan, which is a reference to I'm sure you know what. And so we get to know you on a little deeper layers. To determine the order of who asks the questions, we give the proverbial salon chair a spin. And Abby and I will each ask you a question about yourself to get to know you. So we'll take a first spin of the salon chair. And it lands on Abby. So what are your plans for yourself to have some free time fun in the next few weeks? So I really tend to focus on like late September and October as being like the time for me to to relax. And so I am trying to plan something special for my husband's birthday. We love Nantucket. So I think we're going to go there at the end of September just for a weekend. It'll be the first trip that we've taken without kids 
I don't even know since when, probably three years now, four years. I am planning a trip to Disney World in October with my larger family and my parents, my sister, her children. And so barring that nothing insane happens, although it is sort of insane already um, with this virus, we're going to hopefully be there and having a little bit of family time then too. I love it. So we'll take another spin of the salon chair. And it lands on me. So this is such a tricky question because my question was sort of related to yours, Abby. So now I got to think what I'm going to ask. And I've been so lucky to know Leah for a long time. And we've shared a lot of the same different publications we worked at. And it's been amazing. Yeah, April, you're, we were like a revolving door for a while. Like you, like I would go somewhere, then you would end up at that magazine. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> It's so true. I went from fitness to self and then I came to Hearst and it was just such a, I felt like every seat that Leah left open, I was lucky enough to <laughs> jump into and learned so much from you. I know you're from Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania. What are the things that you love most about home and miss most about home? Foods, places, people, everything. Yeah. You know, when, when I go back to Pennsylvania, I'm from a really tiny town outside of Pittsburgh and there is a lot of nature, mountains, a lot of hiking, a lot of biking in that area, whitewater rafting, like that kind of sort of adventurous spirit and from that part of Pennsylvania. And, you know, my husband grew up at the beach. He grew up really, you know, a few miles from the beach in New Jersey. That is his reset button when he's there it's like there's something molecular about the salt and the water and like everything it's like it really balances him out I love the beach I'm so happy and lucky that we get to spend a lot of time there but my reset is the woods when you grow up going on hikes and smelling the scent of nature in that environment it is a specific smell that honestly, truly does do something to me at a molecular level. And when I go home, if I don't have that experience, I feel almost like I was, I didn't have the full experience of going home. And it actually just happened to me. I was there two weeks ago for a week and I did not get to do a hike or anything like that. It was just really, I was there by myself with two kids. It was really hard. And when I left, I, I felt like weirdly not fulfilled. And I think that's why because I just like didn't get that like breath of fresh air. And so that's what I love most about it. Obviously, that my family, there's so, you know, you, we all have our favorite food places at home and the things that you miss. There's a lot of sort of German origins from the area that I'm from. And so that like great German food or, you know, Hungarian food, it's like very baked into the culture there. So I, I do love like a good stuffed cabbage and stuff like, or like fried noodles and cabbage, like all of that stuff is so delicious and I'm quite to home. But what I get from it is that real grounded sense of like when I'm in the woods, smelling the air, feeling the relaxation is like, that's my reset. That's so amazing. I feel like more relaxed to hear you talk about it. <laughs> it's so funny because I love the beach too and like grew up in, in Jersey going to the shore, but we also went up to the Adirondacks every summer growing up. And I feel the same about the woods where I just have this like, 
I feel so calm and like so relaxed in that environment. And it's interesting how different it is for every person. It just depends on your personal experience, but it's so true. It just brings you like back to center. It really does. It does. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that, Leah. It's amazing. Now I want to go there and go hiking. (laughs) It's a really special place. Pennsylvania sometimes gets a bad rap, but this area of Pennsylvania is very, very special. And and there's just so many fun things to do. So we, we always love to go back. So I think we're getting to the end of our conversation now. So we just ask if you have any final thoughts that you want to share, Leah, Um, And then you could also share how any of our listeners can connect with you, whether it's on Instagram, LinkedIn, whatever you prefer website. Yeah. I mean, my final thought I think is like people who are thinking about a life change in general, the thing that I say to a lot of people is that think about not just what that change could do and propel in your life professionally, because it's always taking a risk and a chance, but also it will also affect your personal life in so many ways. And I look back on my transition from uh, Hearst to Dot Dash and the people that I met at Dot Dash had such an effect on my personal life. I remember the girl that I became close with, the first person that I became close with at the company, I confided in her on a business trip that I was having trouble getting pregnant the second time around. And she was like, oh my gosh, there's a million of us who went through this and this acupuncture has got us all pregnant. And I was like, well, sign me up because I just had three, three failed IVF attempts. And like, if, if Western medicine can't do it, maybe Eastern medicine can do it. And honestly, within four months of seeing this woman, she got me pregnant naturally. Oh my God. And so, you know, this beautiful thing happened in my personal life from making this professional change. And I think like that you have to sort of think holistically about like, are you ready to make a change professionally? Yes. Be prepared for like the greatness that can come personally from those changes too, because when you meet new people and become part of a different organization, it brings on a new energy and a, and a different type of feeling in, in your life. So I think that's a word of encouragement for anyone teetering on the edge of change. And in terms of following me, obviously, you know, my brands can be found on every platform, Birdie, Birdie Beauty on places as well as Brides. And personally, I'm on all the platforms as Leah Wire. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Leah. This was such a great conversation. We're so happy to have you with us today. Thank you to everyone for listening. Check back next week for another great guest. And thank you so much, Abby, for being here as well. Thank you. So much fun. Thanks, Leah. I'm April Franzino, and this is Beauty is Your Business. This has been Beauty is Your Business, produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2021. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network and find prior episodes at beautyisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Your brand message can be on this show. Email us to find out more at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Thank you for listening.